that, you know, the book of Hebrews uh, is probably the earliest book written in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, there's no question about it that Paul wrote it, and I showed you how that, uh, you know, you, you basically know that is the fact that, uh, you know, he probably writes it while he's uh, out there in the uh, uh, Mount Sinai getting a body mystery from God. Uh, and so what he does is, is he writes then uh, this book, and it would make sense that it would be the first book, correlating between what he knew in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and now, you know, uh, what they're going to go through because of the, um, you know, the church age coming into being. And I told you that the key, the key concept in this book is simply the word better. And what Paul does is he, he compares everything that the Jew had in the Old Testament and then shows them that everything now that Christ has done uh, is better. And it, it, uh, it, really, it, it really would make no sense for the book to be written directly to us because, one, we never were under the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. Um, so therefore, uh, we would not even have a direct comparison. I mean, we'd look at it from reading the Bible, obviously, law to grace, but <clears throat> it's very clear here that he's taking the time to go through everything that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament went through and clearly showing them that Christ in the New Testament now uh, is, is better in every way, shape, or form. So, you know, you want to you wanna keep that in mind as you, you know, uh, look at this and, and go. Now, last week, I told you that chapter 1 and chapter 2 kind of go together. There's a lot of different material in each different chapter, but uh, they both follow the same theme, that in chapter 1, he's showing you that Christ is better than the angels, and then he continues on with that in chapter 2. And, you know, one of the things you always want to remember in structure of the Bible, uh, really, I guess anything that's English grammar, is that when you start like chapter 2, therefore... Uh, that always means that those two chapters are going together. Uh, at least they're starting out together. Now, he may put a paragraph mark and change the subject later on, but he's showing you, therefore, um, he's telling you that this is a, um, you know, this is a, uh, a continuation of chapter 2. So we're going to find that these two chapters basically, fundamentally, deal with, um, you know, Christ being better than the angels, and we're going to see some things here. So let's have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get going today. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the time we've set aside to study your word. Thank you for those that have come out today and for those that are on the uh, website. We just pray, Father, that you continue to bless us in all that we endeavor to do. We love you. We thank you for our time that you've given us, for allowing us to have uh, so many people back now, Lord, and we can uh, begin to make that uh, process. And we just love you and thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, we ask it for his sake. Amen. I guess you all saw the news yesterday at some point last night that President Trump made a, had a special news conference yesterday, and he declared that he uh, is overriding every governor in every state to the point where he's telling them that they need to designate churches as essential operations or businesses. 
and that uh, all churches uh, are under uh, are to open this Sunday and with no restrictions. And of course, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, every, all the Christians are just happy about that, and, you know, and I'm sure he did it because he couldn't wait to get back to church on Sunday. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a political move for him, uh, you know, but it's a thing where um, it, it's just crazy. We will continue to stay with where we're at, even though we might be able to get away with it. I just, again, I'm just, you know, just because you can do something, all things are lawful, not all things are expedient. And we'll just take our time. This is wonderful this morning. Everybody that wanted to come got to come tomorrow. Everybody that wants to come in the first group came Thursday night, everybody. And you notice the people didn't come. And that's good. No problem. But it's open now that Thursday night was more like Thursday night and, uh, you know, Sunday morning, tomorrow morning. And then we just move on down the line from there. And we'll just see where it goes. And, uh, you know, just because I can do something, you know, it's based on a political move doesn't mean that it's wise for us to do it because that's, the virus is still out there. We want to be careful with what we do. So just so you said that. Anyway, so chapter 2. And again, in chapter 2, we're dealing with the fact that uh, uh, Christ, again, is still uh, better than the angels. And so he says, therefore, continuation of chapter 1, we ought to give more the earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And, of course, uh, notice that uh, the things that he's talking about here is what the Jew has, uh, you know, heard in the Old Testament and, um, and what God has given them. Now, he says in verse 2, 4, again, 1 and 2 together, If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense a reward. Now, here again, uh, come over to Acts chapter 7. And here's a verse that you want to go along with the book of Hebrews. Uh, verse 52 and 53. It says, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, Christ, of whom ye have now been betrayers and murderers, talking about crucifying him, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Now that is one of the clearest, plainest verses anywhere in the Bible that shows you in the Old Testament, you know, that uh, uh, God gave the word of God and ministered the word of God to the nation of Israel through angels. And not only through your garden variety angels, but through Christ in the form of the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, whichever you find it both ways. And so when you come to verse 2 and it says, for the, if the uh, word spoken by angels was steadfast. So there's the verse you want to put right next to that, Acts 7, 53. Because you're told now that in the Old Testament, God administered the word of God to the nation of Israel through angels. And then he says, and every transgression was of disobedience received a just recompense reward. That would be the Old Testament law. An example, that would be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, you know, you took somebody's eye, you gave up yours. You took somebody's tooth, you know, you took theirs. Doesn't mean that it would fit if you try to put it back in your mouth, but you, that's what you did. And so he's basically saying that in the Old Testament under the law, 
that was given by angels. Now here again, he's trying to show the superiority of Christ here. He says, if everything was dealt with in a recompense of a just reward, which it was, then he says in verse 3, how shall we escape uh, if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, I've done this on occasions and I'm sure every preacher does and, and people do who, you know, we, we spiritualize that verse and, and we say, you know, when talking to somebody about, um, you know, uh, salvation and, and trying to get them to get saved, you know, we've used it in an inspirational application and simply say, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Um, and, you know, you can do that. You can. Now, that's a case where, um, again, that verse is not written directly to me, but it's written for me. So I can, within reason, I can take part of that and use it in an inspirational way. But there are many, many people who will believe, as we've said last week, that the book of Hebrews is the Christians, Hebrew Christians. And so this is where they begin to get into trouble. Uh, and, you know, you, you, may, uh, you may make a spiritual application, but you've got to lift part of that verse out and leave the rest. And, you know, because in verse 4, then you're in trouble. Verse 4 says, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So now it's clearly not to the church. Now this is why, and this, is, this takes a little while for you to pick all this, how to do this. And I'm certainly not suggesting that, you know, that all of you can, can but this is why and how you've got to pay attention to everything in the Bible every word in the Bible, uh, because it'll, it'll always set the context. Uh, you know, I find people all the time, anytime somebody, and this is just an absolute truth, anytime somebody wants to misteach the Bible, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you take a guy who wants to teach some doctrine that is not anywhere in the Bible, and he wants to back it up with Scripture, 100% of the time, he will take it out of context of the context of that the verse is being used in. And when he does that, then, you know, I mean, shoot, you can make the Bible say whatever you want if you just have the freedom to lift out a verse and forget the context and then make that verse apply to what you want it to say. Anybody can do that. I mean, the Church of Christ does it. The Mormons do it. Jehovah's Witnesses do it. Everybody does it. But a Bible believer can't do it that way. And so, you know, you look at this down through here and it says, how shall we? Now, we know that doctrinally now that that's the nation of Israel, the we there. This would add great weight to the fact that he's not writing to Hebrew Christians. And uh, because of the fact that the book is called the Hebrews, uh, he's talking about somebody uh, being the heirs of salvation uh, in chapter 1 verse 14 who, who shall be the heirs that can't be us because we already are uh, and then he says therefore and then he talks about the Old Testament structure uh, of, of a recompense and a reward and then he simply says and how shall we now how anybody in their right mind could read verses 1 and 2 and see 
and even remotely get that it's talking to any New Testament Christian, I have no idea. But certainly when you understand chapter 1, especially the last verse 14, and then you get into the therefore of 1 and 2 of chapter 2, and you see that it's dealing with somebody under the Old Testament, I don't know how you could make the we be anybody but the nation of Israel uh, in the context of what he's writing it to. Again, we can lift the verse out inspirationally because it's true. The, if you're unsaved listening to my voice, you will not escape the salvation. You, you will not escape hellfire if you neglect the salvation. That's a true statement. So the verse in that sense can be used inspirationally. But you've got to leave the verse in the context of what it is to understand how it flows within the context. And the we there has to be the nation of Israel because of what has been before it but then now what follows? And so what he's saying here in verse 5 is, how shall we, the Jew, escape if we, the Jew, neglect so great a salvation? And of course, that salvation is going to be the salvation in the tribulation period, which at first, the Old Testament, up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was preached, uh, uh, began to be spoken by the Lord, uh, then was confirmed unto us by the, the apostle, us the Jews, not the church. And then verse 4, it was uh, God bearing them witness. So the witness that went along with the apostles talking about the salvation to the Jews were accompanied by the uh, signs and wonders and divers miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And this is where you come back to places like 2 Corinthians 12, 12 that talks about that the gifts, signed gifts are to the nation of Israel. You see it again in what we call the Great Commission found in Mark 16, 16. And I showed you a couple of months back the difference between Matthew 28 and Mark 16, 16, yet how did they go together? And God's trap play up the middle to screw up stupid Baptists who don't know anything about the Bible is for them to read Matthew chapter 28 you see it as the Great Commission for the church, which it is not. And then have to deal with Mark 16, 16, which is the same commission where you have all the signs and everything to it, to Israel. So, you know, God has a, as, as it's been said many times, God has a wrench that will fit any nut in this world. And that's what he does by setting up the scriptures that if you don't stay with it and let the Bible tell you and you, instead of you trying to tell the Bible, this is the problem that you get into. So we see a progression here that this great salvation was first began to be spoken by the Lord. Now, let's just stop there for a minute and put it into the context. When the Lord showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was nowhere preaching the gospel that you and I are getting got saved by. No, did he? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, when he sent the 12 out in Matthew chapter 10, he was very clear to tell them not to go to the Gentiles but to go to only to the lost house of the nation of Israel. So we see that, uh, that um, outright when you just began to stay with the context, when the Lord began to speak, he wasn't speaking to the Gentiles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was speaking to the nation of Israel and was confirmed of us uh, by them that heard him. That'll be the apostles. And you notice they didn't go out to the Gentiles. 
they went to the nation of Israel. And in verse 4, God bearing them, the apostles, uh, the ones that heard him, um, God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And of course, that will there is for the will of the nation of Israel. And uh, so we see that clearly, if you just, and this is why I push context all the time. Um, You know, the first thing when somebody asks me a question or tries to teach, show me something that a verse says, um, the first thing I'm going to do is put it into a context. And if you don't have the verse within the context, get out of here. You know, you're wasting my time and wasting yours. And so this is why it's so important that you, when you get, and for the life of me, I didn't read anything complicated. It's, and who is sitting here now or listening to me can't see what I just said the way I laid it out and it becomes as clear as a floodlight at midnight. I mean, come on. How does somebody read that same thing and not get the context and want to make it Hebrew Christians? And the answer to that is, is they've been educated out of the Bible. The scholars in the educated world who have rejected the scriptures, rejected the Bible, and rejected the clear uh, Bible interpreting itself and laying itself out via they want to do it for you is what who taught them. And it comes down to this. Here's the problem with higher education in the Bible sense. Higher education in a biblical format, i.e. a Bible college, seminary, whatever the case, what they will always do is supplement the clear teaching of the Word of God with their knowledge that they believe is superior to the Scriptures. And people going there will begin to believe them more than they believe the Bible. Now, most of you here, just about all of you here, have never been in a Bible college. And uh, in Bible colleges, they had what they call chapel services. And they usually have them every day. And most of the time, uh, you take places like BBC uh, or Bob Jones, uh, Tennessee Temple. I think it's defunct now, but, but those places back in the day, they would bring in good, solid preachers who were pastors who would preach to the kids. And that's what, the, that's what, they're, that's what they wanted them to do. And they, they would come in and give them some great preaching. But in every case, here's what happened. Once they got out of the chapel and they went back to the classes, then the professor would tear down and destroy whatever the guy said to the kids. The most destructive force on this world outside the devil himself, but they're so close that they're holding hands this morning, will be Christian higher education. And uh, I'm just telling you, uh, I don't care what any pastor tells you. I don't care what any other Christian tells you. If somebody says, well, I'm offended by that because I went to so-and-so university, you know what? That just goes to show how stupid you really are. We hope that you get smarter during the process of the rest of your life because you've been dumb up to this point. Because all that system did was destroy your faith in a book that God gave you that you could go to Dollar General store and for one dollar buy a King James 1611 authorized version and have everything in it that you need to figure out everything about God in the Bible without spending all the money you spent the Bible college. But that's the devil's plan. We saw it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. His plan through the coming an angel of light 
becoming a Bible scholar, becoming a Bible teacher, becoming a pastor, is to destroy in the church the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what they do. And so, you know, when you see this and you lay this out, this is why in our Bible Institute, these books are important. If you notice that everything that we have done, uh, we, have, uh, we have just done it through a system of just staying with the Bible. Uh, and while I'm thinking of it, I'm sure you're on this morning. Kathy down in Wichita, I got your Bible Institute, uh, your, your tapes ready to go, not Bible Institute, your people ministry, and I will send them out this week to you. So anyway, uh, just do that before I forget it. No, I don't have to text you because I hate texting. But anyway, so the first four verses clearly shows us that where we're at here, this has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity directly. And yes, there's things in here that you'll see, and we get into chapter 4, uh, I'm going to show you one of the greatest practical teachings anywhere in the Bible that you could preach anytime, anywhere, shape, or form. So there are places in Hebrews which you can do that, but there's places all through the Bible you can do that. You know the Old Testament is not for us. We don't kill a lamb. We don't keep the feast. We don't, keep a, we don't do any of that stuff. But are there not some incredible sermons in the Old Testament that we can preach to ourselves? Sure. But you have to know primarily who it's being written to first and then make the application. Same way with Hebrews. And the moment you start making Hebrews Hebrew Christians, you're, you're never going to return back from that, and, and it's just a mess. And so he says in the first four verses that, you know, that uh, he's setting this thing up, getting ready to show us that Christ, again, continuing on from chapter 1, uh, is better than the angels. And then he says in verse 5, For under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But, a, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now this will be Psalms chapter 8, verses 4, 5, and 6. And it basically is quoted verbatim here. And it simply says that God made man a little lower than the angels. And uh, that, is a, you know, that is an absolute true statement. But he's getting ready to show us something here in connection with Christ. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and dost set him over the works of thy hands. Now, when he talks about crown him with glory and honor, he means as being over dominion of the earth. And this will go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 28, 29, and 30. You want to put these in here along these verses. This is where it clearly shows you that God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then it says, and then God gave him dominion. And dominion means that he is the king of it. So along with that dominion will come glory because man will be glorified as a king over nations. Honor, he'll be honored as a leader or king over nations. So it's not honor and glory connected with God, but honor and glory connected with the uh, being over the dominion of, of the earth. And so he says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he hath put all subjection under him and left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not uh, yet all things 
put under him. Now, come back to Genesis chapter 1 here, and let me show you man's uh, dominion as far as God is concerned. One twenty-eight of Genesis, it says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, over the sea, excuse me, fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then, of course, there's man's limitations of of, of his dominion that he's talking about in Hebrews from the ground up to where our atmosphere ends and outer space begins. And you notice that man was not given dominion over outer space. In fact, if you know anything about the Bible, you know we've talked about it before when we come through the last dispensations toward the end there. I showed you how that in Genesis 1.1, the earth was at the top of the second heaven. And then when everything broke down and fell apart, now it's down at the bottom of the second heaven. And God has basically quarantined it. And he's quarantined it that man can, in his sinful state cannot inhabit and contaminate the second heaven. And this is why they're finding, you know, all these exoplanets out there uh, because, you know, they're now having the technology to see that this second heaven, as we know it, is completely jam-packed with, with planets that are like Earth, except many, many hundreds or thousands of times bigger. And uh, they, they obviously have no clue. And, of course, uh, they revert it all back to evolution and think that, you know, that there possibly is life on these other exoplanets. And, of course... They got it completely backwards. It's not the fact that there's life out there now, but it's part of the process that it's going to be life out there later on, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. But right now, God has quarantined it and put the earth so far down. He says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. God's got his feet on the earth and holding it down. And if God fills the expanse, his head is out the top at the throne of God, the head of Christ is God, and then his body fills the second heaven and his feet are on the earth as his footstool as he sits on his throne. That's the picture that it portrays. And that's why God, you know, limited man. And when man fell in chapter 3, then, you know, it was a thing where God um, made sure that he never, uh, he, he never was going to be able to do that. If you notice, God did... A, number, a couple of things here that fixed man from ever getting back into outer space. And I know, I know man has basically, you know, cracked the door a little bit on, on, on outer space. I mean, we went to the moon. Uh, we, you know, we got a space station up there. We got satellites. We've sent satellites, rovers to all the major planets. We've done flybys of them all. And that's really nothing. You know, the big new thing now is at some point within the next 50 years, the colonization of Mars. And, uh, you know, that's what they want to do. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now, that ain't ever going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's a, it's a, but it's man's attempt to do what they were doing in Genesis chapter 6 and again in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel. And, you know, 
it's a thing where man has a, he has a desire to get outside the boundaries that God uh, has put for him. And that's just part of his, of his flesh and his disobedience. When God says you can't do this, that's the first thing you want to do. It's a lot like us with our parents. If your parents wanted you to not ever drink or smoke or do those things, instead of telling you not to, they should have said, yeah, just go ahead and do it, and you wouldn't have done it. Your defiance was because we have the basic element of us of defying any authority. And so man wants to circumvent that, and he wants to step into outer space and do space exploration. And, uh, you know, and space is the most unforgiving, uh, hostile environment that you ever could be in. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, you know, if you have a hole in your pressure suit, you're chicken noodle soup in about 30 seconds. I mean, it's just, it just, it's impossible to survive out there. It's impossible to survive on all the planets. And, you know, you go to Venus, and Venus rains, rains sulfuric acid 24-7. You know what I mean? Not, it'll, that'll ruin the paint on your Corvette, I guarantee you. And then you go to Mercury, which is the first one, and it's the only planet that uh, it, its rotation is the same time of its revolution. So the same side uh, stays toward the sun all the time, where ours churns, but Mercury doesn't. But it's very fast, and it's very close to the sun. So on the sun side, it's hot enough to melt lead 24-7. On the dark side, it's cold enough to freeze oxygen 24-7. Very hostile. You know, then you have Earth, the only one that was named by God. The rest of them are named after pagan gods. Then you have, you have uh, Jupiter, you know, and then you have, you know, uh, Mars. Then you have Jupiter, and then you have Saturn. And then the last one out there is Pluto, which is so many billions and billions and billions of miles away that if you were on Pluto looking at the sun, it'd just be a bright star probably gets no light, probably a total dark world. In fact, it's called Pluto because Pluto was the god of the underworld and darkness. See how they all work? So, uh, you know, that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. So if you ever meet a gang guy and he's got a gun and he calls you Pluto, that means he's going to kill you and send you to the underworld, just so you know that. So if you've got a concealed carry, take him out before he takes you out. You don't have to pay extra for that. That's just part of the Constitution of the United States of America. Anyway, anyway, when in doubt, take them out. That's what you do. So we see that, that man is quarantined right now, and God has given him dominion over the things over this earth and nothing more. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just the way it is. Now look at verse 9, because he's saying all this, and he wants to make the comparison to the Jew, so the Jew begins to understand. But we see Jesus, comma. Now that means that what we're about to look at, he's setting the, he set this whole thing up to, to show us Jesus now. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, and, and he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, He's showing us that Jesus Christ, who is God, came down and took on the form of a man. 
little lower than the angels. And what he wants to make sure is that we understand that just because Christ came down and became a man, a little lower than the angels, that doesn't mean that he is he's not superior to the angels. And this is what he's trying to show here. In other words, he's trying to get the whole concept to them of who Jesus is. Because remember now, they have rejected him and crucified him, so he's taking the time to do this. Notice what he says, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, die on the cross, crowned with glory and honor. Now that is a different glory and honor than man in the previous verse got crowned with glory and honor. Man got crowned with glory and honor to be over the dominion of the earth. Christ got crowned with glory and honor because he was the very son of God. And at the second coming of Christ, you see that when he ascends back up to heaven to sit on the right hand of God the Father. And he says, so, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That's one of the greatest lateral verses anywhere in the Bible. Now that end of that verse will fit into the nation of Israel, it'll fit into the church, because it simply says that he tasted death for every man. Then there's no limit on that. And there's no limit on God's grace that, you know, that uh, Christ died for everybody. And, uh, you know, here again, a Calvinist just skips over that verse, and uh, he'll tell you that, well, every time you find every man in the Bible, it doesn't mean every man. No, what does it mean? It means every man. Okay, I got it. But that's what they do. When they come up against something that goes against their teaching. Another thing you want to look for with people who teach bad doctrine, and this is across the board, when they are faced with an undeniable verse that tears apart and sinks their ship, they will sidestep it instead of what the verse says, hold on to what they want to believe more than what the Bible clearly says. Now, most people miss that when they're dealing with somebody. You cannot miss that. The thing that I look for in every person when it comes to the Bible is what do you do when whatever you have been taught, you want to believe, or you think is true gets torpedoed by the Word of God? Do you, when it's clearly unavoidable that you cannot get around it, what do you do? That will tell you whether the person is honest or whether they're dishonest. It, the Bible is the book that it, it discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. And brother, when you got somebody, and I'm telling you, you find guys out there who want to believe what they teach so desperately that they're blinded to anything in the Word of God that would go against that. And everybody likes to pick and choose out of the Bible what they want to do and what they don't want to do. But in cases like that, you're going to find that when they are faced with an absolute context that tears apart what they want to believe, then they'll sidestep it and and, uh, continue to believe what they want to believe. And that, of course, shows you the this honesty 
and uh, of people who want to, you know, corrupt the Word of God and to misuse the Word of God. And I, it, 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 that will be true in every person that you deal with. All you have to do is deal with a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or a Church of Christ to see that happen. All you have to do is deal with the predestination guy and show him that verse and, and, and watch how he'll dance around it. All you have to do is take a charismatic over to First and Second Peter and show him how that Christ died for the false prophets who are dying and going to hell anyhow and never were predestined to go to heaven and watch what he does. When somebody is faced with the scriptures that take from them the teaching that they're trying to put out there, which is wrong, just watch what they do when they come up against a verse that uh, will, uh, will, will knock them right off, the, right off the wagon. And it's just that simple. That's what you, you know, he tasted death for every man. And, of course, that applies unilaterally across the board. It applies to you and to me, uh, and it applies, obviously, to the nation of Israel. Now, let me show you something else. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory uh, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, uh, whom he uh, uh, bring many sons to glory. And of course, that's a reference inspirationally uh, to the church age, and we know that, as Romans 8 says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So during the church age, some Jews do get saved. But it can also be a reference to us as Gentiles. But primarily, it's talking about the many sons would be the Jews who blindness in part has happened to. And in the church age, some of the sons of Abraham actually do get saved, many of them. So that's what he's talking about, bringing them to glory, part of the church being saved. But at that point, again, they're not Hebrew Christians because in Christ, as I gave you last week, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. They're now Christians. They're not Jews anymore. If they were born a Jew, they're not Gentiles anymore if they were born a Gentile, as God sees them. Now, by a spiritual new birth, you may be in this world, but you're no longer of this world, and now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and you're a Christian, child of God. And that's what he's talking about. Now, the second thing I want you to see is the captain of their salvation. That's Christ. And Christ is the captain of our salvation. That is a verse that you can use to the church. You, you, know, uh, you know, back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the angel of the Lord in a couple places called the captain of the Lord's host. And uh, so that's where that term originates from. But it's a thing where that in, in our world, you know, a captain is somebody who is over, you know, a, um, a platoon of soldiers. He doesn't get much higher than that but that's his level of overseeing people, but uh, he's in charge. And, uh, you know, in the Navy, and most people don't know this, but the Army and the Navy ranks are, are, are similar, but they're different. When you are a, uh, when you are a, um, a captain in the uh, Army, then you 
have two bars on your shoulder and you're a captain. From that point, you go from being a captain to being a major to being a uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, a major is gold oak leaves. A lieutenant colonel is silver oak leaves. And then you become a colonel, which is the eagles. And then the next step, that is one star that makes you a brigadier general. That's the army. In the Navy, it runs differently. In the Navy, it runs, you go through a series of uh, junior officers, JGs, uh, lieutenants, and then uh, you come up to a commander, and then you come up to, uh, excuse me, lieutenant commander, then you come up to a commander, and then you become a captain. A captain is somebody that, uh, you know, would control an aircraft carrier. A captain is the highest command level that you can get. But when you in the in the Navy, when you're a captain and wear the Eagles, in the Army, that would be a one-star general. In other words, it's a, the, the the ranks are different at that point, and so you want to realize that you know being a captain is someone who takes on major responsibility, and so it's called there the captain of our salvation based on the Old Testament designation, but also for the New Testament, uh, for us. And then he says, the captain of our salvation, excuse me, uh, to make the captain of, of, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, here is a verse that shows you that there's a difference in the Bible, anyhow, between being sinless and being perfect. And most of God's people can never get this. Because we're taught today to think that it's the same. And, you know, perfect in the Bible is not used in the same sense as sinless. Now, I know we talk about it that when you get saved, you're sinless, and therefore in God's sight, you're perfect. I get that. But that theoretically, theologically is not really true. Because it shows here, we know that Christ was sinless. But what he was perfect in it's talking about here, look at it. Captain of their salvation, uh, excuse me, make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Then perfection, once you get saved, you're sinless. But your perfection has to do with what you go through in life that perfects you to the work of God. That the word of God, that the man of God may be perfect, see? Truly furnished. To what? Unto all good works. So when you and I got saved, or when Christ got saved, or not Christ got saved, Christ was sinless, you and I are sinless, but we're made perfect is a different concept in the Bible. Your sinless means that you're sinless to God, but your perfection only comes through the sufferings of this life as you reign with him and work with him and go through the work of God that perfects you through the word of God. And that is one of the most incredible concepts that's lost today. Because in our world, we have gotten so far out of the Bible that we just use worldly definitions many times and don't realize that the Bible defines things differently. The moment you got saved, you are sinless. But you have to perfect yourself, not in your sinlessness, but in the work that God has begun in you the day that you got saved 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and that is a process of going through the sufferings. And Christ was sinless, but the work of God in his life was perfected through the sufferings of the cross. You get saved, you're sinless, but your work for God will be perfected as you bear that cross. And as he says, if you don't suffer with me, you will not reign with me. He says, for I, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. So you want to realize that in the Bible there are two different things. Now, I'm not telling you that so the next time you disciple somebody that's a young Christian, you try to explain that to them. I don't think you should do that. I'm telling you that because you're supposed to be farther along and I want you to learn everything about the Bible there is. So I would treat you differently than if I was, you know, uh, dealing with somebody else in the Bible. I just let it lie and I wouldn't bring it up because they don't need to know it. As they grow in time, then they'll figure it out. The last thing I want to do is take somebody into deeper water than they can swim in. But you're supposed to be agile swimmers now that you can swim the ocean if you need to. So you need to know that there's a difference between sinlessness and perfection. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't always mean that. Christ was sinless, but he was made perfect in the work of God through his sufferings, particularly on the cross. So this is why the Bible always uses the word perfect in relationship to the work, the work that God has for you. And obviously the word of God will perfect you uh, unto all good works. And of course, this is why Christ over and over and over said, this is why I've come to do the work of my father. And through that suffering, his work was perfected, even though all the time he was sinless. So you can be sinless, but not perfect. It goes back to Romans chapter 12, that you may prove what is that what? Perfect. Or, excuse me. Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, I showed you the process of that. Begins with the work, begins with your proving yourself, and then begins with, ends with the word of God where you're perfected. So that is one of the greatest places anywhere in the Bible that, um, you know, that you, uh, you have uh, that shows you the difference between the two. And then he says, saying, I will declare thy name unto the brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now, here again, the moment most Bible teachers, most pastors <clears throat> see the word church, you know, they, they're so absolutely ridiculously stupid with the Bible that they just read that word church into everything and think that there's proof that it's talking to New Testament Christians. They are so ridiculously stupid that they don't understand even, first of all, what the church means and realize that there's five or six different churches in the Bible. We, as the body of Christ in the church age, are only one of them. Acts talks about the church in the wilderness. And that was the Old Testament. And, of course, uh, in the book of Revelation, you have seven churches that are in the tribulation period. There's certainly not churches that like our church. So the word church is a term that you need to understand how the Bible defines it first. Otherwise, you just, you just use it wherever you want to use it and make the wrong context. And this is why, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time that when you study the Bible, you never study it from a Christian standpoint as a, in a Christian in the church age. 
because when you do that, then you're very limited because the church age is only 2,000 years of a 7,000-year process. So when you look at everything in the Bible, those 7,000 years through just a 2,000-year window, you know, this is why guys teach that the church here is always the same. This is why they teach in Genesis 6, uh, you know, that uh, the sons of God were born-again people. This is why they teach that people in the Old Testament were saved just like people uh, in, in the New Testament or in the tribulation period. You know, this is why they think when they read the word gospel, you know, that it's uh, our gospel. When the Bible does the gospel of the kingdom, the everlasting gospel, there's, what did I tell you, nine or seven or eight or nine different gospels in the Bible. And of course, it's a thing where, um, because they look at the Bible from a narrow porthole, the church, they see everything in it as being part of the church. But when you step back and you look at the Bible, not from a Christian standpoint, but from God's standpoint, then you get the big picture of what God is really doing. And then you can put all these things into, you know, into a proper, uh, proper format. And then he says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, and I will sing praise unto thee. Now, verse 11 says, uh, For both he that sanctified and they that who are sanctified are all one, uh, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And notice the word brethren here. And the brethren here, if you, uh, uh, verse 17 is the definition of that, just so you wouldn't think it's the church. Verse 17 of the same chapter says, Wherefore in all things that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That's reference to Christ, and he was made like unto his brethren, a Jew. See? So the Bible leaves nothing to your imagination unless you just want to imagine it, which many people do. So he says in verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they that who are sanctified. Now, in the Bible, there's three aspects to sanctification. And we know that sanctification means you're set apart, sanctified. When you got saved, you got set apart from the world. You got sanctified. And, of course, uh, you know, there's a past sanctification. That's Christ dying on the cross and paying for all your sins. So in the mind of Christ, in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, he says he put all things in Christ. So God sanctified you in Christ even before you got saved. Then there's a present day sanctification. That's when you get saved uh, and then you daily are sanctified by keeping yourself from the world. And then there's a future sanctification. Uh, this will be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 where the Bible says that you get sanctified holy, all of you. And that'll be you getting your glorified body. So there's a past sanctification when Christ died on the cross, that he saw everybody in Christ, and in Christ he put the blessings and the salvation, and your sanctification of salvation is in Christ. So the day you got saved, present sanctification, you had to get in Christ to get the sanctification that he put in at the cross, and then you're saved. Now you're set apart from the world. But there's a time coming, and even now you've still got your flesh to deal with. 
So, and I say this all the time, and I can say it to you guys without confusing a lot of people. The reality is right now you're only half saved. Now, that, that's okay. Don't get panicky about that. But uh, what's saved about you is your soul. Uh, but your body hasn't been redeemed yet. This is why in Romans chapter 8, the great chapter on the uh, um, you know, resurrection body, he clearly shows you that there is two adoptions. There is an adoption of your soul. That's the day you got saved. Now your soul is sanctified, but your flesh is not. But a day coming when you get Romans chapter 8, uh, that you get the body of Jesus Christ, now, First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-three. Um, now you're sanctified, holy. You're complete. The section, second adoption, has taken place, and now uh, you're uh, it, all of you. And now you got the glorified body, the likeness to go along with the glorified image, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Christ in you, the hope. You don't have it all yet the hope of glory, glorified body. So there again, one of those little things about sanctification that comes out of here that you, you know, you want to remember and you want to be able to, you know, see these things and, and be able to, uh, you know, understand how, how it all works. And he says, so then he says in verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto thy brethren in the midst of the church. And of course, the church that he's talking about there uh, will be uh, the church in the tribulation. Inspirationally, you could make it the church of our church where Jews are getting saved, uh, uh, blindness in part. But the direct concept will be the church uh, and, uh, and, and going into the millennium. And the key to that would be saying, I will declare thy name to thy brethren, Jews, in the tribulation in the midst of the church, seven churches, Jewish churches, in the tribulation, will I sing praise unto thee, millennial reign of Christ. And that's where you'll find all the millennial psalms. They're praising him and singing to his name. And then again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Uh, and so in other words, again, he's talking about... Uh, you know, the, uh, the nation of Israel here and the children uh, which God hath given me. And uh, so then he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, that'd be the nation of Israel, or the people in the Old Testament, us too, but context, Old Testament, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So what he's saying here, and remember now that he's, he's clearly demonstrating that Christ is superior to the angels, but he's clarifying all that God did and bringing him down and manifesting himself as a man, going through all of the things, being perfected through his sufferings, but all the time, he is the son of God and he is better than the angels. And that's the thing that he's specifying through this whole thing. And he's saying, just as the guys in the Old Testament, uh, you know, they, uh, um, they were partakers of the flesh and blood. So was Christ. He came down to be a man. 
Uh, he was part of the same. But then he shows you why, and here lies the difference, that through death he might destroy him that have the power of death, that is the devil. Now this is another one of the great, great, great aspects of the Bible that is lost today. And, uh, you know, when Christ got died on the cross, there were so many aspects to that of, that you can study, so many different avenues about it. And obviously, the main one to us, and I get it, the main one to us was the fact that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Nothing will be more precious to us than that. And, uh, you know, that's just, uh, that's just what he did. And it was an incredible thing that he did. And, you know, to us, it, it means all the difference in the world. But most people never go beyond that. And therefore, they never really understand the depth of Christ's death on a cross. And we as Christians are so, for the most part, are so shadow with the Bible that all we know is the terminology that Christianity has invented without even understanding the workings of those terminology. And I, I do it all the time. You know, you ask a person, you know, uh, if they're saved and they'll say, yes, I am. And you say, well, you know, uh, what does that mean? And, you know, they'll talk about, well, I was born again. And then you press it, well, what does that mean? If you would ask that person, explain to me the process of being born again. They couldn't do it. I guarantee you, 99% of God's people could not do it. If you press them on the issue, what it really means to be saved, and you ask them, okay, let me ask you this then. What, what changed about you the split second that you did get saved or trusted Christ as your own personal Savior? What, what changed about you from before you to that instant when you were? They, they couldn't answer you. They don't have a clue. We, are, we, have, been, we have been so lazy when it comes to the Bible that we just rest in the terminology that we're all familiar with without ever really understanding what it really means. <clears throat> and I would say, and I'm not saying this is true, but if you had to understand the whole plan of salvation of what God did, um, the 12 aspects, I mean, stop and think about it. Uh, let me hear. For instance, when it comes to your salvation and my salvation, theologically, doctrinally, biblically, here's the 12 doctrines that hit your life the very second you got saved. Doctrine of justification, doctrine of redemption, Doctrine of propitiation, doctrine of remission, doctrine of expiation, doctrine of imputation, doctrine of regeneration, doctrine of reconciliation, 
doctrine of spiritual circumcision, doctrine of spiritual adoption, doctrine of sanctification, doctrine of glorification. Twelve doctrines that the moment you got saved transpired inside you. Now, you ask those twelve to any Christian you find and just watch how that they they just don't have a clue. Now, I'm not saying this is true, but if you had to know what really happened to you to get saved, to get saved, <laughs> most of God's people have never been saved. Thank God you don't. But this is the way God's people are. They're lazy, they're slothful, and there's a sluggard when it comes to understanding things. They'll take the path of least resistance, They'll listen to the terminology that somebody gives them without ever having to understand what the terminology really is all about. And of course, you know, that's, that's how it works today. And when it comes to our salvation, you know, we just take the general easy approach. That's why, proof what I'm saying is that most God's people, if you would ask them to show you the crucifixion in the Bible, they take you to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You ask me to show you, I'll take you to Isaiah 53. I'll take you to Job chapter 30. I'll take you to Psalms 18. I'll take you some places that'll show you what really happened the day he got saved. Not the little portrayal, kind of like, um, you know, the little... uh, thumbnail picture of the crucifixion that was painted by Norman Rockwell. I'll show you the one that's graphic. And, uh, but that's where God's people are today. And I said that, you know, verse 14 says that when Christ died on the cross, sure, he paid for our sins. The day he died on the cross and he resurrected from the tomb, he began to put in place 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which we know as the gospel of the grace of God for the church. And that gospel of the grace of God is simply the fact that uh, Christ died according to the scriptures, buried and according to the scriptures, and rose the third day according to the scriptures. You've got to have all three. He had to die, he had to be buried, and he had to rose again. If he didn't rise again, then the rest of it's worthless. And, you know, Paul makes a reference to this, to the church at Corinth, when they're screwed up on the resurrection, and he says... You know, if he didn't rise from the tomb, then everybody's in their sins still. But most people don't understand the real finalization bottom line of what really, really, really transpired the day Christ was crucified. And it's laid out for you in verse 14 toward the end there. And uh, up to and through the Old Testament... The devil had the power of death. And uh, that's why nobody in the Old Testament could resurrect from the dead. Uh, This is why Christ, when they died in the Old Testament, they had to go to Abraham's bosom, which we now know, thank God, is not body parts. (laughs) This is why that when they died in the Old Testament, they had to go to Abraham's bosom. Because the devil had the keys to death and hell. Now, keep in mind that when God talked to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he clearly told us that, that the hell has gates on it. And Peter was given a key. 
And it's a thing where um, the devil had complete control. And that's why you find places in the Old Testament where, like when Moses died, uh, over there in Jude, it says that Michael and the archangel and the devil, they were disputing. Uh, and most people, and the new translations all translate it wrong, they say he was disputed over the body of Moses, like he was fighting for Moses' body. That's not what it says. It says that the, uh, the devil and Michael the archangel was disputing about the body of Moses. Now, when Moses dies up on Mount Nebo someplace there, the Bible doesn't tell you uh, anything other than the fact that he died, and I think it does make a reference that he was buried up there. But the thing about it is, is that Moses did not stay dead. At some point, God brought him up because Moses is going to come back and die in the tribulation again. And as we saw in our study uh, on dispensations, you have some people in the Bible who die once. You have some people in the Bible who die twice. And the reason for that is a model of what's going to be uh, in, in the millennium. So the devil's upset about the body of Moses. About what about it? Is the fact that Moses didn't stay dead. And he's arguing, disputing that that was against the rules because he has the keys of death and hell. Which the answer to that is, you only have the keys because God said you could have them right now. But you know what? He'll do whatever he wants to do even though you still have the keys. And that's what he was upset about. Because up to... In the Old Testament, the devil had the keys of death and hell. Now, when Christ died on the cross and he dies, this is where the devil's victory looks almost like it's in the bag, so to speak. It's a thing where he he now has the keys to death and hell and Christ is in his domain under death and hell, so there's no way that he can get out. And in the devil's mind, he has him completely now, and the devil has won. And it's a thing where he, he actually believed at this point that he could keep him in death. And of course, uh, that didn't happen. And when Christ comes out of that tomb... The Bible says in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, that he now has the keys of death and hell. So he took them from the devil by rising up from the dead himself. And it's a thing where now the devil has been defeated. And the devil no longer has the keys to death and hell. That's why Christ could go down and preach to, the, uh, to spirits in prison Abraham's chest cavity and he had the keys that he could unlock the gates and lead them out and that's why from that point on when you got saved and I got saved we got into a spiritual body never to die again uh, unless you know spiritually and even if you die physically before the rapture God tells you that it's sleep because now there is no death. God, he's got the keys. And that's why Paul says 
in Romans, death, where is thy sting? Romans 8. He says, the sting of death, is, the sting of sin is death, and it's gone now. And of course, it's, it's one of the greatest, single, most powerful, absolute key doctrines anywhere, anywhere in the Bible. And it is the greatest single concept of, of what really transpired, you know, on the cross. And it wasn't about, uh, it wasn't about anything more. I mean, it was about our salvation. But you know what? If he wouldn't have come out of the tomb and got the keys, death and hell, his death would have been nothing. Nobody could have got saved. Because the Bible says, we saw it here a little bit ago, over here in chapter uh, 2. Down in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, because he come out of that tomb, that by that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. There it is. When he died, came out of that thing, he tasted death for all of us. And we never have to worry about dying again, spiritually for sure. Don't have to worry about physically either, because the moment you do, you're going to heaven. Except we still do. So it's a thing where, you know, what he did, what he did, uh, what he did on the cross, he, he defeated the devil. Because up to that point, the devil had the keys of death and hell. Now, having said all that, putting everything into a biblical concept, at that point, 2,000 years ago, when he snapped the keys in death and hell, the devil knows at that point he cannot win. He has lost his trump card. No connection to the trump. He, he's lost his trump card. He's lost his full four aces because now uh, he cannot win, and he knows that. The devil is so egotistically stuck on himself, and this is no attack on him because I know better to do that, but the devil is so egotistically stuck on himself that he can't concede defeat. Now, I'm going to say this again, and I hope you're all paying attention to this. This is why a guy who teaches bad Bible and heresy, he can't concede when he sees a verse that destroys what he wants to teach. It's one and the same, man. Maybe not on the same level, but it's, on the, it's, it's one and the same. The devil got nailed right there, and he can't accept the truth. I will bring anybody in any time, place that's got a heresy and nail them with something that will destroy what they're teaching, and they'll do the same thing. They'll continue on to teach it because they're out of the same mindset. And when you love the truth, then you will change whatever you think you believe when you see a verse. I didn't say verses. The verse. It only has to be one. I've had guys say, well, show me another one. No. If one isn't going to do it for you, a hundred isn't going to do it for you. 
You've got to be smarter than the idiots you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, and I know, I know, public speaking, I, I'm not very good at it. I, the rules are never speak down to your audiences, and I get it. Some of you sap heads will never understand that. <laughs> but it's a thing where, you know, it, you watch how this works. It all is connected. And he knows now he is defeated. He can never win. So, <clears throat> two things. We'll see a little bit about this tomorrow. Two things. We know that he's the king over the children of pride. And we know that uh, his pride lifts him up, that he cannot see the error and accept the truth. That's one reason. The other reason is that his mindset is that he knows now inevitably what his end is. And he's going to take as many of you with him as he can. It's just that simple. He is going to take as many people with him as he can. And he will keep this thing going right up to the very end. And it's a thing where, you know, he knows that he cannot win at this point. But yet, nothing's going to stop him. You know, he's going to continue to put everything into play just like he is going to win. Because he, he cannot admit defeat. And he, he thinks that there's some way... He's always going to find some little avenue, some little wrinkle to outsmart God and get the upper hand. And there again, this is why Bible scholars and Bible teachers and neo-evangelical pastors and Baptist pastors do what they do with the Bible in clear face of the facts. They think that they are smart enough and smarter than God they can just find that little angle. And, of course, it all goes back to the same thing. So that is one of the absolute key manifestations of truth that you will ever find to understand why things are the way they are and why what really happened at the crucifixion. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, if you watch how Christ uh, is up against the devil there when he comes and tempts him, the devil always wants to be God. That is his fundamental. And I always noticed how that he leads up to it. And that's what the devil will do with us. He got this thing he wants to destroy us with, but he won't present that to you right out of the chute. He'll lead up to it. That's what he did with Eve. And that's the way he always works. And when he came to Christ, the first thing he asked was, what was it, you know, um, make the bread stoned into bread or something. The second one was jump down off the temple. But the third one, see, he finally got to what he wanted. The third one, he said, he took him up in mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you bow down and worship me, then I'll give you all these kingdoms. And you see, <clears throat> who gives all those kingdoms to Christ? God does. So he's telling him, if you recognize me as God and accept me as God and let me overthrow you as God, I'll give you these kingdoms. It's what he does. It's what he does. And he got defeated. And now he can't give anybody anything except you and me a hard time. But it's a thing where he is defeated and he knows it. And uh, he will play it out to the end. You know, Delusion 
is an incredible thing to study. I've told you before that the greatest type of the Antichrist is in the 20th century was, was Adolf Hitler. There's so many, he is the last great Antichrist picture. There's nobody better than him in the 20th century. And I've given you all that stuff. Back on my table back there is a copy of his card, 555, if you want to take a copy of it. But it's a thing where nobody, nobody in the 20th century could match him. I mean, on 100 points, <clears throat> at the end of World War II, and he died on, on uh, April 30th, I think it was, just last month, 1945. And he's in Berlin in the bunker underneath the Ragstar uh, uh, down there uh, for almost a month. <clears throat> and uh, the Russians are 100 yards away. <clears throat> the last of his troops are just holding them off, but it's just a matter of hours, <clears throat> days at the most that they're not going to overwhelm everything. <clears throat> Berlin is, there's no way out. They're surrounded. They're trapped. They've tried to get him out. He won't leave. He stays. And he, at that point in his life, you see the arrogance, you see the demon possession, you see the complete disregard for reality. All his armies on all fronts are retreating. They're crushed. They're destroyed. And yet he's standing there ordering all these armies into battle that do not exist. He keeps talking about the great wonder weapons that Germany is, is, is developing, which they were that they're still going to win the war, which they weren't. Those factories were bombed by the 8th Air Force out of existence four months ago. He could not accept the reality of his situation, and he's screaming units in the battle that did not exist, panzer units to the front that are no longer available. That goes to show you that when a man gets disillusioned by who he thinks he is in his greatness, that he loses touch with reality. And here he is, a human mortal man orchestrating battle plans that could never be implemented because they don't exist. That's just a picture of what the devil is doing right now. On a grandioso scale, he makes Adolf Hitler look like a you know, mud puddle next to the Pacific Ocean. I mean, but this is what he's doing. And he's going to go full force as long as he can. He's going to look for that little wrinkle that he thinks is going to turn the key for him to let him defeat the Lord. And uh, he uses everything in his power. There's a place back in, I think it's in Ezekiel. <clears throat> and you know, we all know about the story of Saul and the witch at Endor. How she went to, she, he went to consult with her, you know. Well, that's a, he's a type of the Antichrist. So in the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Christ, the Antich it's right in there. The Antichrist is, is not sure which way the Lord is going to come. So he also goes to a witch. And the Bible says that they use enchantments. They do something else when they look in the liver. And looking in the liver is the spots if they find them. And she gives him the way to go to get the Lord, to beat the Lord. And she, she gets the wrong, just like the witch in Endor, she got the wrong information. And he goes the, goes the way she tells him and he gets clobbered. I mean, it's all in there. But he, up to the very end, he thinks he's going to defeat him. And it's all because of his arrogance and pride. 
And of course, you know, that is one of the greatest any principles anywhere in the Bible that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And then he says in verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that'll be the Old Testament saints. All their life they were in bondage under the Old Testament law and Romans tells you that the law is death. And they were subject to bondage. What is the bondage? The bondage is death. And when Christ rose from the dead, he took that bondage away from them. For verily he took on, uh, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now there it is, clearly showing you a Jew. Wherefore, because of what he just said, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, there it is, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, you see what he's doing there? He's showing the Jew. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, where he starts out with Christ, which is where he should. Completely showing them that Christ is better than the angels. In the first chapter, he is very direct about it. I mean, in the first chapter, he talks about the worlds, the brightness of his image. Who has he ever said of the angels that sit on my right hand? He was very direct. But in chapter 2, he continues on, but now he shows them the humanity side. Where in chapter 1, he showed him the deity side. Now he switches to the humanity side but still showing them clearly that he is still better than the angels because he is still the Son of God. And now he shows the Jews and us why he, why he came. One, he was sinless, but his work was perfected through his sufferings. You better get that one. Two, that he tasted death for all men. You better get that one. Three, that he defeated the devil and had the keys of death and hell. And when he did that, he took the bondage of death away from every man. So now he says, verse 17, in closing out the last two verses, wherefore, cause what I just said, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, a Jew, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God, here it comes, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And that is the final thing that he did. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure. Now secure is an old English word, it means to help. He is able to secure them that are tempted. Now you can see that this verse 18 completely ends with the Jew in the tribulation period who are going through their tempting times. Yet at the same time, in a practical way, it's for us that when we go through our tough times, falling back on understanding what the crucifixion really was and understanding better now who Christ really is, that he is the eternal son of God, but yet he was made a little lower than the angels that he might 
fulfill all the work of God and leave a model for us that even though that now that you're saved, you are sinless, you're not perfect. The perfection has to do with your work. We'll talk about that again tomorrow, that you're sinless, but you're not perfect, that you're made perfect through the work, through your suffering. And that's what you got. So we'll hold up there.